This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Come with me, please, to the book of Esther, chapter 3. Esther, chapter 3. If you go back from Psalms, Job, Esther. And uh, before we get into chapter 3, let me just uh, very briefly uh, just uh, bring you up to date with what we shared this morning. Uh, this is a reference to King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, the Medes and the Persians. His empire was huge, stretched all the way from North Africa to India, all the Middle and Eastern countries in between and others. It was the superpower of its day. And uh, he had been reigning now for a while. He had reigned after his father Darius and his grandfather Cyrus. And uh, we talked this morning how that this book speaks of the providence of God. Simply put, that means that God working behind the scenes of men and women's lives, uh, working out his purposes for his glory and for their good. And uh, we see this throughout this book. And one of the reasons why I'm sharing this, the main reason why I'm sharing it, is for us to see that, for us to understand and know that God deals with us by his providence in our lives, that he's always, always working behind the scenes. Sometimes we can't see that, we don't feel that, but he is. And so the story goes then how that uh, uh, Hasharias, uh, he was a very uh, capricious and quite a cruel man. He was fond of drink, loved parties, and uh, that got him into trouble on more than one occasion. And at one of his feasts, uh, his wife, Vashti, the queen, refused uh, his command. And because of that, in a fit of pique and anger, uh, he got her banished from his sight, never more to be queen. And then it took a turn after that, where for a period of three years, uh, he fought some wars against Greece, against the Greeks and the Spartans, lost that, came back to the kingdom again, and uh, was not in a very good mood because he had really lost at war, he really lost his wife, and uh, so his courtiers, not wanting him to be in a bad mood, it's never good to have a despot in a bad mood, you never know what they're going to do, and uh, so they encouraged him, well, why don't we go out in all the 127 provinces of your great empire and round up all the most beautiful girls we can find and bring them to you, to Shushan, to the capital... <coughs> or to your, uh, to your palace, the citadel, this fortified palace, and let us, uh, after a year's preparation of beauty treatments, then let us parade them before you as a great beauty queen contest. You will be the only judge, of course, and you will get to choose the most beautiful of all. But little did he know, little did they know, little did anybody know, that the one that he eventually would choose was one who was right in his own backyard. This little girl called, this young woman, I should say, called Hadassah, which is her Hebrew name, or Esther, which is her Persian name. They have to understand that the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, they delivered the Jewish people from the 70 years captivity in Babylon. And when they did that, some had the choice to go back 
uh, to their own homeland to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the temple of Jerusalem. Uh, it was Jerusalem. And so many of them did that, including Nehemiah and Esther. That's what those two books are about. But some decided to stay, quite a lot decided to stay, and to assimilate. And by the time we join the story here in chapter 3, they've already been there about 150 years. So they're well settled and well assimilated. And as we can see, then they have uh, their various parts of the community they're involved in. And Mordecai, Mordecai was, was one of those who had a job as a civil servant in the courts of the king. Uh, but Mordecai, his young uh, cousin Hadassah or Esther, uh, her mom and dad died, that's his aunt and uncle, so he decided that he would take her really uh, like a child to bring up as his own and to take good care of her. And so somehow or other, when this great beauty contest was being staged, she got involved in it. And we said this morning, when it came to the, the contest, there was no contest because she just won hands down. As soon as he set eyes on her, then out of all of those hundreds of women, she was the one. And so she got married. Now she's the queen of Persia. And before we go into chapter 3, let me remind you one more thing. Uh, Mordecai, who was uh, you know, one of the civil servants in the king's courts, he discovered a plot to kill Ahasuerus. And the plot was two of his high officials. These were the two conspirators. So he told Esther to tell the king, Ahasuerus, about this plot, which he did, and make sure you mention my name, which he did. And so he executed those two conspirators and made sure it was recorded in the chronicles and the records of the books of the Medes and the Persians for historic value. Everything these kings did whether it was Ahasuerus or his father Darius or his, great, his grandfather uh, Cyrus, all was recorded in scrolls. And so that was done. Now, when we come into chapter 3, they have been married about five years. All right, so they're about five years married here. And now enters another person into this story. Uh, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamedatha, the Agite, Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. Now you might wonder why did he not advance and promote Mordecai, who had literally saved his life? Well, that was a mistake on his part. He should have done that, but he didn't. But it wasn't a mistake on God's part. This was providence. This was God doing this for a later date, which we're coming on to. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. So this man, by the way, I should say, was extremely wealthy. I mean, he was mega rich, as you'll see in a moment or two. And how many know that whether it's kings or queens or princes or politicians, they like the super rich to be around them. You know, it's good for their kudos. And so he was super rich. And of course, Artaxerxes, having fought these wars that he lost, you know, his, his finances would be somewhat depleted. And so he, this guy, was super rich, and he's actually going to give him some money, as we'll see in a moment or two. But Mordecai would not buy or pay homage 
Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Now up to this point we saw this morning, he didn't say he was a Jew, and he told Esther, don't say you're a Jew, because they realized there was empty Semites within that kingdom, and he didn't want themselves exposed. But here, he's having to expose himself and say, actually, I'm a Jew, and I am not going to bow to that Haman. Under no circumstances will I bow to him. And we'll see the reason for that as we go on. But this infuriated Haman. Not only was, he, not only was everybody to bow to this man, every time he came within their line of sight, they were to literally bend down and bow, and in fact, they were to tremble in his presence. Now, remember, he's number two in the kingdom now. He wields great power and authority. He's a man to be feared, except this little Jew called Mordecai. He just would not bow. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he detained, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. So there's a lot of Jews. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. So here is a, a rabid anti-Semite, and he is in a position of great power. And one of the things he wants to do is to wipe out every Jew in the whole empire of the Medo-Persians, every single one of them. And he felt he had the power to do it, and he felt he had the money to do it, and he felt he was going to get the, the, the legal right to do it. When anti-Semites get into positions of power, they can cause great trouble for Jews because they hate them. We, we see in our present British system how our Labour Party is riddled with anti-Semitism, riddled with it from the top down. And I read a report just the other day where it says, where the Jews in Britain are saying, if the leader of the opposition gets in to power, we're out of here. We're gone. Because it doesn't bode well for us. And he's, they're right, it doesn't bode well for them. And so here's this anti-Semite, and he is in a position of power. Remember now, geographically, where this area is today. This is, area is Iran today. And don't you know that the leaders of Iran today still hate the Jews and want to wipe them out and has threatened to wipe them out of the face of the earth? And that's why they're after nuclear power because they want to use it against the Jews. They want to destroy them completely. And so after two and a half thousand years back then, it's still going on to this very day and the same area is still going on. And in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is the lot, Pur means the lot, the casting of the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. The casting of the lots was an ancient way of trying to discover how to make the next move. In fact, you'll find that in the New Testament, in the book of Acts chapter 1, where they cast lots to see who would take the place of Judas, and it was Matthias the lot fell to. So it was, a, it was a popular way of trying to find out what the next move is. We'll cast a lot to see what happens, and that's what they did here. 
And notice too that it fell on the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So they cast the lot on the first month. And no doubt he got his wise men and his sages and his astrologers and his prognosticators. And, and they gathered together and they said, oh, we'll cast a lot. And the lot so happened it fell in the last month of the year, in the 13th day of the last month. And this is in the very providence of God. Because now they're going to accept that they've cast a lot. And as far as they're concerned, their gods are pleased. This is their gods wanting to do this. But it means it's another 11 months before this is going to happen. That gives God time, plenty of time, to make sure his plans are in order. So all of this continually is showing how God is behind the scenes, working on the behalf of God's people. And so, in Proverbs 16 and 33, it says, The lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So even though they cast their lots, God was behind how it fell for them to make sure it would be in the last month of the year and not the first month that they were in. And so, it's on to say, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Notice he didn't say Jews, a certain people. So he's being very crafty here. He wasn't just actually naming them, but he says a certain people. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Now, he was right, and he was wrong on that, by the way. He was right in that their laws were different because they obeyed the law of God as best they could, even in a pagan land, even in captivity. But he was wrong on this. They do not keep the king's laws. Actually, they did as best they could, unless and until it crossed God's law because they were very good at keeping, they were good citizens, they wanted to remain good citizens, they wanted to help whatever company they're in, and they're like that to this very day. Wherever they are, they'll prosper that area, they'll work hard, they'll do good things, that's the way it was. Therefore, he said, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they should be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. 10,000 talents of silver is an incredible amount of money in that day. So this man was super rich. And of course, the king would be happy because he's going to pay the bill for this. He's going to foot the bill. So... Instead of the money going out of the king's treasuries, it was going to go into the king's treasuries to make sure this would be paid for. So the king was happy. He didn't care. He never even asked who these people were. He never even asked, well, what laws are they breaking? He didn't care. That's the type of king he was. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamedatha, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do to them as it seems good to you. Now, a couple of things. <laughs> his plan is, and we'll see this in a moment, his plan is, is to stir the people up against the Jews in all the provinces. Because if he stirs them up, then they will be the ones who will attack the Jews and take from them 
kill them and take their possessions, take their homes, take their goods. It was a free-for-all. That's what he's thinking. He doesn't need the king's armies to do this. And that is a good job. That's in the providence of God. Because if the king's armies had got involved, you'll see later on, that would have put the Jews in an impossible situation. But he wanted to stir up the people. The Nazis did this during the Second World War. They got people to turn against the Jews. And many of the Jews in Hungary and different nations was turned in by those people because when they got them exported to the death camps, they would take their homes, they would take their possessions, they would take their lands. So that thing has still gone on even during the last war. And so there's a bit of history between Mordecai and between Haman. Not personally, but in their backgrounds. Notice it said he is an Agaite, which means he is from the descendancy of King Agag, the Amalekite. You'll find this in 1 Samuel. The Amalekites were a wicked, evil people. And whenever the children of Israel went into the wilderness, or was wanting to go into the Canaan, uh, these Amalekites, they were the first to attack them and not let them through. In fact, they attacked them from behind where their elderly and their women and their children were. So they were a wicked, evil people. And God said, I'm going to destroy them completely. And in 1 Samuel 15, he tells them to destroy them completely. I'm done with them. I don't want them of the face of the earth. Get rid of them. But when you come to 1 Kings 15, King Saul is in power. And Samuel told him this, but he didn't do it. He spared Agag, the Amalekite. Should have killed him, but he spared him. And spared even the animals, which he was told to kill too. God didn't want anything to do with them. But he spared them. And of course, as he spared them, then obviously his soldiers would spare them too. And so Samuel was enraged by this, and he took a sword, and he cut King Agag in pieces. But some of the Amalekites escaped, and they would come back to hunt the people of God continually from that moment on. And here as a descendant of King Agag, and by the way, Saul, Saul was of the household of Kish. Did you notice how Mordecai came from the clans of Kish? And so you can see there's a clash here. You can see why Mordecai didn't want to bow down to this Jew hater. Didn't want to bow to this one who attacked his people trying to go into Canaan's land. And you can see then how Haman would hate this Jew because he would think, you're the people that killed my king. You're the people that wanted to destroy my people. And so you can see there's a lot of animosity here between these two. I imagine that Haman, every time he saw Mordecai, the bristles would stand up on the back of his neck. And every time Mordecai saw Haman and saw everybody bound to him, the bristles would stand up on the back of his neck. So a clash is inevitable, isn't it? This is, this is the background to them. And then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written to all 
that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all the people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. And the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written, and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old little children and women in one day. On the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. The Nazis plundered the possessions of the Jews who went in those trains to the death camps. They plundered them on the way there. They plundered them. They stripped them when they got there. They took everything they owned off them and they stole it from them, even their arts, even their valuables in the homes before they left. They stripped them everything, even when they murdered them and burnt them and incinerated them, they pulled out their gold teeth out of their corpses. Anybody that's ever visited Auschwitz and Birkenau, you know what I'm talking about. You see what they did. You'll see a roll of what you think's cloth that was made of human hair. They even used the people's hair to make cloth and to make socks for the Nazis' soldiers' feet. And here is this anti-Semite wanting to get the people to plunder every possession. And a copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out and hastened by the king's command to the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. And so the king and Haman sat down to drink for the city of Shushan was in confusion. They sat down to drink. Can you imagine this king? He doesn't care. He's just signed a piece of paper. Hundreds of thousands of people are going to, men, women, and children are going to be slaughtered by that piece of paper he has just signed. And he doesn't even know why he's doing it. He doesn't care why he's doing it. Stalin was the same. Stalin, when they told Stalin that the Tartars, those were the Crimean people who live in Ukraine, that they were against him and they need destroyed, he just signed a piece of paper and looked out his window as if just signed a piece of paper. Didn't mean a thing to him. Nothing. And this king is exactly the same. So that's who we're dealing with here. And when Mordecai learned all that happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. Sackcloth was a, you put on of your mourning. And every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing and many lay in sackcloth and ashes because they knew there was going to come a day when they're going to be attacked and slaughtered. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take a sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hightouch. She wasn't sure. She didn't know why he's, in, why he's in mourning. What's he mourning about? You see, she has been in this palace for five years. She did not know what was going on here because the king didn't tell her. That's man's talk. That's the business of the kingdom. 
She had her own quarters. She had her own maids. She had all of that there. What does she need to be involved for? So she, he didn't tell her. So she's wondering. And by, by this time now, it's 30 days since she's been in with the king. We'll see in a moment. So she didn't know. And she's wondering, what is he mourning for? What's he running about in sackcloth? And I said, give him a new suit there and get it on. But he wouldn't do it. Then Esther called Hattach, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her. And she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hattach went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hittites returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. So he's making sure that Esther sees this in black and white. This is not hearsay. This is not rumors going around. This actually has happened, and she didn't know. But she's going to know now because she's going to read it, and she's going to see it signed by the king, her husband. Then Esther spoke to Hatach and gave him a command for Mordecai. And all the king's servants and all the people of the king's province know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law, to put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. Hmm. Do you think she was afraid? I bet she was. You know, for five years she had it easy. For five years, no harm came to her. She was the queen. Nobody could touch her. But now everything's changing. Now it's getting dangerous. And besides, she hasn't been into the queen for 30 days. I wonder, well, see, I'm sure, I, I can imagine her thinking, I wonder why he hasn't let me in for 30 days. I wonder did I say something to upset him. He's very moody, you know. <laughs> you never know what way he's going to turn this old boy. I'm sure all these thoughts were going through her mind. And by the way, he had lots of concubines, so he wasn't going to bed alone every night. So she's wondering why. But she's afraid. Because she knows if she just blunders in there and he doesn't hold out that scepter, at the, at the very most she's going to die, at the very least she's going to be abolished or thrown out like Vashti was. So no doubt she was afraid. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape the king's palace any more, you, that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. So don't think you're going to escape this, dear. You're going to get it too. Yet, yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I think those 
immortal words of Mordecai, I think for the first time it dawned on him. Ah, Lord God, this is why I stayed in Persia. I could have went home like the rest, but I didn't. This is why I stayed. This is why I have been promoted as a civil servant to the king's gate. This is why I adopted my young cousin. This is why she has become the queen of Persia. This is what it's all about. God, it's your providence. It's you been working all these things out according to your will. I think that's when it dawned on him. All the pieces of the jigsaw are now being put together and he's beginning to see the bigger picture that he never saw before. And our lives is just the same. There comes a point when you look back and you see those pieces of God's jigsaw in your life being joined piece by piece. You maybe didn't see it at the time, but when you look back, then you can see the picture more clearly. And this is what's happening to Mordecai. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. Up until now, it's all been feasting. But now it's fasting. There's a time for feasting, but there's a time for fasting. When things get desperate enough, sometimes fasting is the only thing that's going to break through. My maids and I will likewise fast, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She's extremely brave. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes. Hmm. On the third day, so she's obviously has beautified herself again. Put on her makeup. Put on a wee bit of lippy. Put on her eyeshadow. Put on her perfume. Get all dolled up. But then she put on her regal robes. I mean, this may be her last time as the queen. This may be her final day as queen. Maybe the end of her life, actually. So she is going to look her regal best. She's going to knock him out. Or she's going to die trying. And so she's all dressed up. And notice this. And she stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. This was a very long palace, 300 feet long. And he's away at the other end of this court, sitting on his royal golden throne. And she comes at the other end of the court, and she stands there, looking absolutely stunning. I wonder what she felt. I wonder, was her wee knees knocking underneath her dress? I wonder what she was praying, because she's been fasting and praying for three days. I wonder what was going through her mind. This was a big thing. This was life and death. 
And so it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. Ah, the relief must have been palpable at that moment. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? <laughs> ah, she's back in favor again, Queen Esther. What is your request? It shall be given you up to half the kingdom. By the way, that's superbly. There's no way he was going to give anybody half his kingdom. It was an exaggeration. You remember Herod did this when Herodias' daughter danced before him? And he's so pleased. He says, what do you want? I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. And she says, give me John the Baptist's head and a platter. He was trapped by his own words. So what is your request that should be given you up to half the kingdom? So Esther answered, if it pleases the king, let king, the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. <laughs> so she's operating in faith now too, isn't she? She's got a banquet prepared. She's all prepared. This better go right because she has stepped out in faith here. And it did go right because God was in it, you see. So let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. He wasn't going to turn down a chance for a party. He was a party animal this month. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly. Uh, and I've underlined this in my Bible, I like this. And that he may do as Esther has said. <laughs> If Haman knew, and he didn't know that, if Haman knew that Esther was a Jewess, <laughs> ah, but he didn't. And so the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And at the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. So there's twice now he said this. Then Esther answered and says, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I shall prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Ah, that's a bit strange. Here's her big chance. He's already asked her twice, What do you want? Just say, and it's going to be yours. Why in the world is she hesitating here? Why is she putting off for another day? It seems like she's procrastinating. But actually, this is not procrastination. This is providence. You see in a moment why that was so important. She didn't know how important this was, but God knew. So God got her to delay one more day. <laughs> Fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. 
I mean happy days. Things is going swimmingly well for this man, he's thinking. He's thinking the king and the queen of Persia has invited me to a banquet of wine. And not only that, but they're inviting me again tomorrow. Just me and the king and the queen. Wonderful. And he had all this power and he had all this money and he had everything. I mean, it's just it's happy days, isn't it? That's what he's thinking. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. <laughs> you know, we, we said that the king had a massive ego. This guy has a big ego too, but it's a very fragile ego. He is the ear of the king of Persia. He has money and wealth untold. He's got a family of ten sons. He has lands, he has houses, he has everything any man would ever dream to have. He has it all. But one little Jew who would not bend to him, he couldn't stand it. His ego could not stand it. One person, the whole kingdom, wouldn't buy, and he couldn't handle it. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. He probably thought, do you know what? In another 11 months, he'll not be here. He'll be dead. In fact, every Jew in the kingdom will be dead. And so he goes to his friends and his wife. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, how he advanced him above all the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. He even put himself before the king here. I'm invited, the queen has invited me, he's telling his family, the queen has actually invited me. Oh, by the way, the king's coming too, but she invited me. You, get, you can see this man's pride is just getting bigger and bigger, isn't it? Hmm. But listen, verse 13. Yet all this avails me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. See, everything he had meant nothing at this point because that one little Jew wouldn't bow to him. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged in it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. <laughs> and the thing pleased Haman so that he had the gallows made. Seventy-five foot gallows. He was up all night making sure they were made because he was going to be at the king first thing in the morning. First thing of the king's business, he would be there making sure he was going to finally kill this old Jew. He wasn't going to wait 11 months. He was going to get rid of him tomorrow. The thing pleased him and so they had the gallows made. By the way, when we think of gallows here, we're not thinking of a platform by a trap door and somebody hanging by a rope. 
They knew nothing about that. They impaled people on a pole and strung them up. The Romans later would nail people to poles and crucify them. But then, he's up all night getting the gallows made. Can't sleep. Filled with indignation. But notice this. That night, the king could not sleep. See, I've, I've underlined in my Bible, that night, that night, of all the nights he couldn't sleep, you would think that after the banquet of wine, you would think that king would go home and sleep and he'd be snoring like a hippopotamus that night. But he couldn't sleep. He just couldn't sleep. Sleep had left him. The providence of God. Really see what happens. The king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles and they were read before the king. He couldn't sleep. So what was he going to do? He only do a thing a big egotistical king would do. He sent for one of his men, bring me some of the scrolls of the record of my great kingdom and read them to me. <laughs> now, how many people have ever been to Trinity College Dublin? Oh, good, a few of you. How many of you went into the great library, the old library? Just a few of you. You know, it's worth a 100-mile trip to do it. You go in that library, it's huge. Some of the books is bigger than I am. Huge. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of these. Massive library. In fact, Trinity College, in all of their libraries, has over 5 million books. Now, can you imagine these scrolls? There must have been a great big room somewhere because these scrolls covered all the events of all the provinces of the whole empire, not only under his rule, but his father's rule and his grandfather's rule. So there must have been hundreds of thousands of scrolls in this great big room, all piled in the shelves. But look what happens. And it was found written that Mordecai had told Abigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahas Arias. Now, what would be the chances? You imagine one of the eunuchs going to the, the librarian say, and say, the king can't sleep. He sent me for some scrolls of his kingdom. Pick me some scrolls. I can imagine the librarian thinking, oh, what am I, where am I going to pick? Look, look. What does he want? He didn't say. He just says, bring me some scrolls. I can imagine him scratching his head and thinking, well, looking around, thinking, well, where do you start? So he just would go over and pick half a dozen scrolls. They'd take that to him. He'd probably only read to them, and then they'd fall asleep anyway. What would be the chances that the very scroll he picked would be the very scroll that God wanted him to pick out of all of that? This wasn't luck. This was providence. This was God moving. Look what happens. And so he read in the scroll about, remember what happened, we told you, how that Mordecai had saved his life. And it was written and had to be written in the scrolls. And that's the very scroll, that one, that night above all times, that's the one he read. 
Then the king says, what honor or dignity has been bestowed upon Mordecai in this? The protocol would be, if you had done a great deed, especially to a king, then you'd be highly rewarded. You'd be given goods or gifts. Your names would be written in dispatches. You'd be highly rewarded. So he says, well, what was done for him? The king's servants who attended him says, nothing has been done for him. What? That's highly unusual. Nothing has been done for him. Let me add just a wee aside here. King Ahasuerus had a savior, Mordecai, that he never acknowledged. That he had completely forgotten he had a savior. And there's lots of people today, like Ahasuerus, they have a savior that they've never recognized or have completely forgotten about. Nothing has been done for him. And so the king said, who is in the court? So he wanted to put this right immediately now. Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. He was there at first light. He wanted to be first order of business that morning. You know, the king and queen has invited him to a banquet that afternoon or that evening. He wanted to get rid of Mordecai to get him out of his hair for good. That way he would finish him and then he would go and enjoy himself the rest of the day. So the king's servant says, Haman is there standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? <laughs> Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? <laughs> Here is this great proud man thinking, nobody else deserves to be honored more than me in this kingdom. <laughs> That's why the king's asking. So he's standing there with a big smile on his face, beaming, thinking, boy, I'm really going to get blessed today. Listen to this. And the came and answered the king, For the man whom the king's delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn. Boy, he could see himself dressed up in that, couldn't he? And a horse in which the king has ridden, which is a golden royal crest, rather, a royal crest, crest placed on his head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the whole city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. <laughs> and he could see himself on that horse being led around, everybody waving at him, full honor, the whole city was his. That's what he could see. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. <laughs> I mean, that is funny, isn't it? Now you say God has no sense of humor. I mean, that is funny. Who else but God would have thought that up? And here he is. He's absolutely gobsmacked. That's the sound of his chin hitting the marble floor. He's gobsmacked. 
That was not what he was expecting. He thought, this is going to be a brilliant day. I'm going to the banquet of the king and queen of Persia, and only me is going. But first of all, I'm going to kill that old Jew. And suddenly, here he is, going to have to lead him around the city on a horse, proclaiming his, proclaiming him. So Haman took the robe and the horse arrayed. Mordecai, sorry, so Haman took the robe and the horse arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And I can imagine me Mordecai sitting on that horse just smiling and saying, thank you, Lord. <laughs> Praise God, that's wonderful. And afterwards, Mordecai went back to the king's gate. No pride here. No pride here. After that big parade, he goes back to his job that he was doing that day. But Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And when Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Hmm. You see, there's a reputation about the Jews. Historically, people knew what had happened in Egypt and how God, their God, delivered them with a high and mighty hand. They also knew that their God got them delivered via the Persians out of Babylon. So there was, yes, there was those who hated them, but there was those who had a fear of them, thinking their God's a mighty God. And even his wife now is saying, you're beginning to fall. <laughs> and while they were still stalking, talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet, which Easter, Easter, which Esther, I'm reading too much today, which Esther had prepared. Oh, Matthew Henry said that pride is the deceiver of the pride. Pride is the deceiver of the pride. And this man was deceived by his own pride. But destruction is coming to him. And so the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. I'm sure he was not looking forward to this party now. He's not in a party mood. He's in a foul mood. And on the second day, <laughs> so it's been stretched out, <laughs> On the second day, at the banquet of wine, the king said again to Esther for the third time, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. And Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. The very thing that was in the decree that he had previously signed. You say, well, had he forgotten about this? You know, this is about two months ago he signed this. Two to three months ago. But you know, he had a vast kingdom to deal with. And by the way, he didn't care. He just signed a lot of things that just came before him. It probably didn't bother him, but he wasn't really thinking about it much but she's bringing it back to his remembrance. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy 
could never compensate for the king's loss. In other words, you know, if, if my people are destroyed throughout your empire, you're the one that's going to lose. Haman tried to convince them it would be better for him if they were not there, if they were destroyed. She's saying, actually, if you destroy them, you're going to be the loser because they have contributed mightily to this kingdom of yours. They're hardworking, they're industrious, they're prosperous. You know, they, they do stuff. So if they go, you're going to suffer financially. So she's using her head here, isn't she? So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Ah, his heart must have dropped into his bits. Suddenly, here he is, exposed before the king. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. He is incandescent with rage. Doesn't even want to be in that room. He goes out into the garden to get his thoughts together. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. One look at the king's face, he knew, I am in deep, deep trouble. I have seen that look before, and nobody survives that look. So he's pleading for his life. And when the king returned to the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Either in his, his emotional state of fright and fear, he, he must have rushed over, maybe wanting to fall down at her feet, pleading for his life, and he fell on top of her on the couch. <laughs> what? When the king returned from the palace to the place, the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? What? How dare he attacking my wife in my own house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Those eunuchs. By the way, whenever the king went out of the room, he should have went out of the room too. Only the eunuchs were allowed to be alone with her. No other men. But he was fighting for his life. This was his last ditch attempt. And so they grab him. They put a bag over his head because those who were going to be executed weren't allowed to look at the king. And he certainly didn't want to see his face. Now Harbinah, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows... 50 cubits high which Haman made for Mordecai who spoke good on the king's behalf is standing at the house of Haman then the king said hang him on it and so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai then the king's wrath subsided this is the providence of God and 24 hours <coughs> in one day that threat was eliminated. God can turn things around very quickly if he so chooses. But, that's a big but, and we're almost finished. But, even though the greatest opponent has now been 
taken out of the picture. Remember the king has signed that decree and the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be broken. He couldn't unsign it. So what does he do? On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king. So Esther had told how he was related to her. So it's all in the open now. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, gave it to Mordecai. So he's number two now. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now Esther spoke again to the king and fell down at his feet and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agaite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. She's asking him to do something he can't do. And the king held out the golden scepter towards Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in your sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by him and the son of Hamedatha the Agite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? How can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? But he couldn't do it. He can't reverse that law. The law of the Medes and the Persians, even if a king writes it, can't be reversed. Then the king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay hands on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seat it with the king's signet ring for whatever is written in the king's name and seated with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So the king's scribes recalled at that time in the third month, which is the month of Saban, on the 23rd day, so there's nine months to go, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded the Jews and the satraps and the governors and the princes and the province from into Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in his own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sailed with the king's signet ring, sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses, bred from swift steeds. And these letters the king permitted the Jews who were in every city, this is important, to gather together and to protect their lives, to destroy and kill and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both the little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. So he can't revoke what he's written, but he allows them to write this new command that they can fight for themselves. Now, let's get back to Haman. When Haman suggested all this at the start, the one thing he didn't suggest, and it was a mistake on his part, but not on God's part, was to get the king's army involved. Had he got the king's army involved, Ahasuerus couldn't have, he couldn't have given them this command because he couldn't get them to fight his own army. But because it was the people he was going to destroy them, he says, okay, you can fight them and you can destroy them. So all of this is in the plan and purposes of God. And so Mordecai, let me just 
jump on down a bit, verse 15. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, great crown of gold, a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday, and then many of the people of the land became Jews because of the fear of the Jews that fell upon them. Is that the end of the story? Almost. Almost. Just another couple of minutes. Not everybody rejoiced. There were still anti-Semites who would be still determined to destroy the Jews if they got half a chance. And so Mordecai sent the word out. And when it came to the day when they were to be destroyed, then they went out and reversed their fortunes. And they began to destroy all those who had set out to destroy them. And in the end, 75,000 of them were destroyed. In the end. And I'm cutting this a bit short because of time. And then because of all of that, then a feast was inaugurated, the Feast of Purim, from Pur, casting the lots. And this is not one of the five feasts that God ordained that they should, that Jews should should hold, but this was a different one. This was a special one that they decided. And after two and a half thousand years, Jews still hold the feast of Purim. And it's a time of great joy and great rejoicing and giving of gifts because they look back to then, to that time we're reading today. And in the synagogues, when this is read at the feast of Purim, when it comes to mentioning the word Haman, that all the children are to hiss and to shout and to make a noise every time his name is made and stamp their feet. That's a wonderful time of rejoicing. And they still rejoice over it, even to this very day. And in chapter 10, the last couple of verses, and King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Glory to God. And so God in his providence working behind the scenes turned the whole thing around for his glory and for their good. And that's many, many times what God does for us. Working behind the scenes of our lives, often we're not even aware of it. Certain days, certain times, certain people comes into our lives and before you know it, it's the will of God. It's the plan and purpose of God. So never despair. Sometimes we get really, really despairing of what's next, what's God up to. God's up to something, and if it's God that's up to it, I just let him get on with it. Because as long as I stay humble before him and walk before him, then he can work out the plans for my life, and I don't have to worry about them. He'll work them out in his time, his way, and we give him leeway to do that. Say, Lord, we are ha our life is in your hands. Do with us as you wish, when you wish, how you wish. And when we do that, then he takes care of the details. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal. 
or visit our website for more information www.mpc.org.uk